Welcome to the Evolving Enterprises podcast, stories of growth and transformation. I'm here with Brichelle, my new starter, and we're going to explore a bit more deeply the area of transformation and of ensuring that organisations meet their strategic aims. And one of the ways that we, we can make sure we transform our organisations and we can make sure that the aims of the organisation are met are through reward mechanisms. And so all organisations have some form of reward mechanism. Reward mechanism may be relatively informal. It may be a, a chat with the MD at the end of a period of time and performance that's done well will be rewarded and performance that isn't will, will not. And that, that can be a, a way of rewarding performance. But the re reward mechanisms can be way more elaborate than that. They can be inbuilt into people's sort of you know, monthly, weekly, annual review. They can be fixed in written in criteria for you know, people to sort of achieve. They can be written in terms of a, a kind of pen profile for, for people who want to progress in the organisation. So the reward mechanisms are really, really key because they set in place behaviour. The behaviour will meet the reward mechanism. So if you, if you set a target, people tend to do you know, better against that target. And one of the really key things is to make sure that the target's appropriate. So we, we can see organisations who, where they've, they've lost their way you know, quite regularly. Many years ago, I used to stay in a, a hotel. It was, it was a particular grand hotel, and initially it was very well run. Clearly, you know, at some point in the, the time I'd stayed there, there was a takeover, and it had sort of been taken over by some people who, frankly, didn't know how to run a grand hotel. And they, you know, just everywhere they had stuff which didn't really match. They'd kind of done a quick, cheap bodge up on this and a quick, cheap bodge up on that. The, the swimming pool, you know, just obviously developed a leak at some point. And so you could see the, the, the kind of extra tiles that have been added in a fairly different colour and all just very poor, poorly grouted. And you just think, what a shame. I mean, it was a beautiful looking hotel. It was kept up um, so wonderfully by the, the previous owner. And it had kind of gone into decline because they, they didn't have that central sort of, you know, uh, idea of here is what a grand hotel looks like. And this is what we need to do from the point of view of rewarding, maintaining and delivering this. One of the comments on the review site was, was just so brilliant. It said, the only thing grand here are the prices. And they were absolutely right. And of course, you know, people vote with their feet. They, they will leave if they don't feel that they are getting what they want. So a well-run hotel is dependent on, on having its reward mechanisms in place. It's dependent on having you know, a really good structure and a, a really good approach to delivering you know, the, the sort of the vision for that hotel. Uh, hotels are relatively simple sort of enterprise to visualise. Many of our organisations are more complicated than that. They exist in different places to serve different customers, etc. But reward mechanisms are so important. And there's the, the key thing that we have to think about is what does the reward mechanism look like in your organisation? And how is it linked into the overall aims for the organisation, the overall plan? Where do you want to be? What's the overall kind of plan that you're, you're going to work to? And what's the legacy you want to leave? So going back to one of the previous podcasts, we talked about, you know, the overriding sort of our overriding desire to, to leave a legacy. And it's important as an organisation to think about what that legacy will be. What's that important stamp that you're going to make on the world? And then how does the reward mechanism that you've got in place go and support that vision? Does it? Does it support it? Does it, does it deliver against that? Or does it simply do the, the same old, same old that you've done before? I've, I've analysed reward mechanisms on all sorts of different organisations. I've looked at the mission, the vision of various organisations and contrasted that with what's actually delivered. Mm -hmm. And it's astonishing to see how different you know, that can be. 
you know, the vision for, for example, the Met Police in the UK. So the, the police force that covers London is uh, to be the most trusted police force in the world. It's got a whole lot of sub-elements in it as well. But certainly with the recent issues that have sort of plagued the force, I don't think anybody would say it's achieving that particularly well. So the question is for the Met Police, what is their reward mechanism? What what does a, a good police officer have to do to, to be a good police officer? What values does that police officer have to espouse? How are they lived? What are the behaviours that really live the culture of that organisation? How are those behaviours encouraged? How are good behaviours encouraged? How How is good policing encouraged? What's the legacy that the police force would want to leave? In 10 years' time, how would they be wanting to be seen? And I think the vision of the most trusted police force in the world is a very, very good vision. How fantastic that would be if they could deliver that. This is very much what we need as a a society, as a community, to have not just policing, but to have services provided in a very, very trustworthy way. But what, what, what underpins that? What's the next level down? And then how do the reward mechanisms fit into this? There's a really interesting example in a, a one of the, the sort of government sectors that I've worked in over some years, where they were essentially trying to promote innovation, and so the the organisation was was there to cultivate innovation. They were there to to go and bring about a culture of sort of doing things in a new and for, for a very kind of different way, and. There were lots of issues with the innovation culture. There were quite a few issues within the organisation itself that were supposed to cultivate innovation because they, they didn't have a particularly great risk appetite. Mm. Um, you, you can't say that you're going to innovate if things don't go wrong. Yeah. You know, the, the only way of innovating is to try and try and try and try. You know, when the, the light bulb was first invented, it wasn't done on its first try or the second or the, the tenth or the hundredth. It took just real, you know, sweat and passion and just trial after trial after trial to eventually get there to the point where you could take that big step. So the the, the starting point for innovation in that particular government enterprise was was not particularly strong. They, they began on a premise of, well, we want to innovate, but we don't particularly want to take risk. Okay, right. That's, 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 that's interesting. Mm. And then the, the next thing that happened was that they wanted to connect a whole lot of different people with our innovative system. And the reason for doing that is because if you, if you innovate in this, this sort of very big enterprise, an individual, say a sort of person working in their garage or a little small enterprise, won't be able to produce, you know, a thousand whatever it is, is if we're talking about hardware, quickly enough, they'll have to be paired with somebody else. One of the big problems in innovation is that if you're a, a small organization and you've you've developed something that's potentially game-changing, you own the intellectual property to that, you own that innovation. But unfortunately, that can be taken by a larger company. And, you know, it's very, very difficult to to deal with that. I mean, clearly the the law is on your side. You should be able to get your fair share from from the money that that large organisation could make from your idea. But in practice, it's very difficult to do that because, uh, you know, there's all sorts of legal barriers. Things are put in the way. The larger company have, you know, access to better lawyers. They can delay things and they can ask for this and ask for that. And all that does is just cost you money. And they know very, very well that you will run out of money before you eventually get that to the court, a case that you might well win. So, of course, any any, uh, new innovator is very reluctant to share their intellectual property. So there's a really tough dance that has to be done to get the IP shared in the first place. Mm -hmm. So the reward mechanism is, again, odd in the sense that we want to have people working together, innovating, you know, as, as, as a single community. And yet that isn't really the reality of what's happening ground. 
So the, the final straw in that journey of you know, difficult innovation comes when you want to buy the end product. So we, we go to yet another organisation that does the procurement on behalf of central government in that particular department. And that procurement organisation has a whole lot of rules. It has a massive, great manual for the way that procurement is done. And through those rules, you know, things that can be produced en masse to a predetermined specification, predetermined quite some while in advance. And, you know, those that which, which can be produced in a very timely way tend to be favoured over those things that can't. So if you think about innovation, what, what time is sort of, you know, what time is Einstein going to come up with the next, you know, great whatever it was in his time? You know, what, what time would a successor to, you know, the light bulb or whatever it is be invented? Well, we don't know. That all happens in due course at the appropriate junction, all that stuff. And um, so it's the last thing that that procurement organisation wants to hear is, well, we'll see if we can meet, you know, with that. If, if, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's a, it's a very, very researchy answer to a very kind of business focused question. And so the, the last phase of the reward mechanism is that it more or less irons out um, all innovation that could possibly be bought. So we start off with a vision. We start off with something where we say, we want to be really, really innovative and we're, we're going to do everything we can to be innovative. And then you work your way through a system which sort of is, is systematically not very good at rewarding innovation, right up to the point where you almost can't buy the innovation that you're encouraging right at the end of the system. And it's bizarre if you, if you organised a system to you know, remove innovation, you know, it was doing, good, doing a very good job. So... How, how do we move on from that? It's about getting the reward mechanisms through the whole enterprise, thinking about the journey that the people who interact with that have. One of the diagrams that I, I try to draw out with clients on a journey like that is, is an emotional map. So I would say to the small innovator, right, well, how do you feel? You've got your first contract. Someone's given you, I don't know, a couple of thousand pounds just to go and move your idea forward by a few days or whatever. How do you feel? The, the chances are they feel quite good. You know, it's a relatively small bureaucracy bureaucratic process, they've got a little bit of money. If you've, get, you've got then another tranche of money, you've got, I don't know, 100,000 to move your idea on next stage, how do you feel? I feel amazing, it's 100,000 pounds. It's more than we've ever turned over before, possibly in that, you know, that enterprise. That's brilliant. So, you know, they feel great, brilliant. So really, really high starting point of that emotional map. And then you get to the kind of, well, we want you to work with whoever it is. Well, that's quite a negative emotion. I don't really want to work with whoever they are, you know, mm -hmm. said big contractor because it feels like that's going to be an issue. And then you get to the sort of, how do you stack up against the criteria? Here's the, here's the sort of, you know, the standard for purchasing in this department. How do you match against it? Well, we've got even the money or time to, to look at how we, we match against that, mm -hmm. is the honest answer. I, I, I don't feel good. You know, you've, you've told me that you, you want me to innovate, and now you've said, here's the procedure for innovation, and I don't think I fit it. Mm. So how do I feel? Well, I just feel like I've been you know, led up the garden path, really. I've got, you know, this wonderful technology, which, you know, you funded me for, great, but nobody seems to actually want. So the innovators' experience in that is pretty grim. And the, the staff experience, those people who were responsible for delivering innovation don't have a much better journey either. They, they go through that whole system feeling, you know, quite sort of unvalued and, you know, as though actually what they're doing isn't going to make a huge interest. We talked in the previous episode about motivation, about mm. how important motivation is. Yes. And so how, how do we get motivation into that system? How do we get all of those people, all the stakeholders who need to take this forward, how do we get them to be really motivated? 
And I think the processes and the manuals and things are so demotivating, actually. I think they, they eat out of this, um, the, you know, the spirit of what people are trying to do. The, the most efficient organisations tend to be small organisations because they're not held back by all that process. Yeah. They're not held back by the sort of, oh, we've got to tick this box and we've got to fill this in and we've got to fill that in. They just get on and do good stuff. And the more we can get back to that kind of getting on and doing good stuff, the better. The more we can strip out bureaucracy that isn't needed. I mean, there's clearly, you know, if it's public money that's going into these things, there's clearly some bureaucracy that's needed. You can't just pour public money in and uh, have no expectation of what you're going to get out. That would be sort of misuse of public funds. But you don't have to put all that process in. You don't need all of that um, bureaucracy just to, to move this forward. As a process in sort of it's been adopted within the the um, UK, it's it's a worldwide standard. The ISO nine thousand and one, and a lot of organisations have kind of moved towards that. And it's really interesting to see the dynamics of an organisation as it changes when when that that process tends to be adopted. Mm-hmm. Now, ISO nine thousand and one is is essentially a, a way of delivering things consistently. It's a way of making sure your processes are consistent. So if you are sort of going and doing the, diag- the sort of the, the test that will ultimately help in the diagnosis of cancer, doing that very, very consistently is probably really important because you don't want too many false positives or false negatives. Um, so so uh, having a, a quality process that runs through your enterprise is massively important. If you're in the business of innovation, though, a quality process is, is a, a slightly interesting thing. You clearly need some form of process. You need some way of judging you know are we roughly on the right track are we are we heading in the right direction or not but again i think that sort of bureaucracy doesn't doesn't really work there's a wonderful thing called harmar's catechism out there one of the things that harmar sort of came up with was midterm exams so harmar was uh, one of the um, sort of senior leaders at uh, i think it was darpa it was one of the american um, defense research organizations and uh, harmar's catechism came out of the need to down select a lot of things. So the approach that Tarpa took at the time was they they would fund maybe I don't know a hundred potentially interesting ideas, and they'd whittle that down to maybe ten to you know four three, and ultimately they'd they'd be wanting like one or two that they would take forward into the later stages. So early stages when it's just a bit of you know um, scratching your head and thinking about stuff that doesn't cost very much. So you can put some ideas together, you can think about what you might do. It's very very cheap at the beginning. As you start to then take things into the lab and start to test them, there's a bit more money needed. As you take it out and um, puts that that new innovation into uh, service, into maybe sort of in a defence environment, you, you take it out onto a ship or onto a plane or whatever, that gets really expensive because the first thing you've got to do is make sure it's not going to cause the, the ship or the plane danger. Mm-hmm. It's not going to, you know, short out and uh, cause a fire. It's not going to, you know, set off a, an explosion somewhere. So all of that certification is massively expensive. So that the cost is, is exponential. You know, there's a tiny cost at the beginning, fantastically large cost at the end, particularly if you want to make any changes to it. And so it's not worth taking all those things through and paying all that money for, say, 100 potential innovations. You want to take a few through. But how do you know which few to take? And that was Harmar's uh, question of how do you make sure that you're taking the right things through? And so Harmar's suggestion was at the beginning of the activity, you think about what are the midterm exams? So if we if we wanted a computer to run twice as fast as a computer runs now, that might be a bit of a challenge because you might have hit the laws of, you know, the laws of physics might stop you. I think yeah. they probably did. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm always amazed we can run computers as fast as we do. 
but we're getting more throughput through computers. So how do we do it? We do it by paralleling up the, you know, the processors. Mm. So we, we parallel stuff up as much as we can. So theoretically, if you have two machines that can run perfectly in parallel, you can do twice as much work in a given instant of time. What if you wanted to do 100 times as much? What if that was your challenge? So if you set that as a challenge to a group of innovators and you said, right, we want to do you know, 100 times as much work with a computer, what's the what's our way forward and the so the the, the way forward would be that we you would basically figure out well what, what's what's the midterm exam that's going to demonstrate that this works and the midterm exam might be how much can you make the the thing that you're trying to run parallel so if you're for example processing an image if you're processing a, a tv picture you could probably parallel that up. You know, if it's if it's the same sort of process that's being applied across that picture, you could say, right, well, each of you, if we if we want a speed up of whatever, you each take a chunk of that and you'll you'll do, you know, a hundredth each, say. And then if you can do that, you get a hundred times the performance out of the thing. But if if you're in a situation where you're you're handing information from one thing to another to another to another to another, then you can't well, they'll in parallel. You, you, you know, the, the results from process one to, to go into process two to go into process three, and you can't then parallel it. So Heimeyer's catechism would be would be saying, what do you need to do in order to achieve, you know, that sort of midterm goal? And the, the midterm goal might be, can can we somehow or other run this in parallel? Can we think of a way we can run it in parallel? Because when you do that, we solve the problem. So what does it take to run it in parallel? What's the what's the test? What's the not necessarily midterm test, but what's the one month test of we're on track? What's the one week test that we're on track? So you can go back and you can look at metrics that are really, really useful for your organization and really help you to know whether you're on track or not. And that's really the art. It's, it's about getting metrics and reward mechanisms that are absolutely aligned with your organization and kind of bring that spark back into people's day so it's not filling in a process a a sheet it's not ticking a box it's not sort of completing some kind of procedure but you're actually going to be able to do something new and something different Mm. so you you increase motivation the more motivated people are the more they bring great ideas into work the more that they'll you know just doodle around with something in their spare time and, you know the more that they they might well in my case i've i've been known to leap out of showers still with water dripping off me with a wow that's a great idea and you know i, I don't think that any other great ideas I, i've had are going to win me Nobel, Nobel prizes but you know it's 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 good to you know just write down those ideas and feel that yeah this is something that's going to help someone going to move someone forward going to do something useful in the world so that's sort of being able to to improve motivation is really really key I'd say with regards to, you know, just rewards in general, this is all very much supported in psychology. You see it a lot with operant conditioning. You can reinforce a behavior, you know, encourage a behavior mm-hmm. through rewards and punishments. If you want someone to continue a behavior, you know, you'll give them a reward and it will motivate them to do that behavior again. And so, you know, implementing these rewards into your businesses, you know, if you want innovation, for example, you want to move forward, you know, you reward these people for cool, you know, the ideas they come up with and all of that. And that will give them the motivation to keep going and keep doing whatever the target is. And so, yeah, it's very much supported by, this is operant condition in general, it's very much supported by many studies. You, you see it a lot. And so, yeah, it's very much a good thing to invest in a reward system and things like that. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I'll be asking the question, well, what does innovation you know look like it's not necessarily just the producing the great ideas Mm. but it's that process of kind of standing back from things and thinking 
wouldn't it be great if you could have whatever it yeah. is? And and I think the the journey and if you if you look at the sort of entrepreneurial mindset, the entrepreneurial mindset people think about entrepreneurs as being people who've got this great idea and they just keep on banging away with a great idea. But that's not quite true. It's you no, know, that's that's you know the gist of it. But actually, what an entrepreneur is doing is they're going along with a great idea that seems like a great idea at first, and then they will modify that idea a bit because they'll go and talk to a whole lot of people and they'll go and test it and they'll they'll try it and they'll find, hmm, okay, it's got some some flaws. This idea has. Let's see if we can modify it and we can make it a bit better. Mm. And they go along with a, a, another sort of plan of, okay, well, look, this is this is version two and this is this this covers this and covers this and covers this. Ah, but it doesn't cover, you know. Oh, doesn't it? All right, okay. So they keep on subtly adjusting and, and adjusting and adjusting yeah. until eventually they've they've really managed to learn what's going on. And this is all about the the environment, learning about the environment. And the more that you can learn about the environment, the more that you can really do well and service, you know, the the need that's out there. But you can't learn about that environment from nothing. You can't go along with a blank sheet of paper to your potential customers and say, "Draw me what you want." Because they'll say, well, it's your job. <laughs> you produce me something and I'll see whether I want to buy it or not. Mm. You know, we're not going to sit there drawing a car. When we, we, we go to the garage and we say, what, what car can you, can, you, can you get me? How much is it going to cost? What are the options? We expect people to do that for us. And that's what an, an entrepreneur will do. They will go out with um, you know, a great idea and they'll keep on adjusting and adjusting and adjusting and tuning and honing it until eventually they get something that is really marketable and is, is really a, a great um, way forward. Uh, and that's that's very much what we want to reward. So I'd be looking at what the mindset is yeah. and how you build a reward system to not just reward the person who says, yeah. hey, you've got this, this amazing thing, because that's a bit late then. You know, you want to be rewarding the journey. You yeah. want to be rewarding the people who are on their way to be able to deliver that. And all, all those people who are you know, potentially able to do that. I mean, there's uh, there's the stories of, of Einstein being sat in the patent office hating life, you know, and just imagine what that patent office could have got if, they, mm. if they'd inspired him. Imagine all the, the things he could have come up with long before he was getting too deeply involved in relativity. But you, you have people like that. You have people who have been ignored, left aside by the reward mechanism in their organisation, who go off and do amazing things. Quite a lot of them start their own company and they go and do it that way. Uh, and, and actually, it just really demonstrates that that the organisation they left could have had so much more. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm sure that many of them wouldn't have wanted to leave or have to start their own company. But they, they do that because it's the way of getting themselves freedom from a very constraining system. So I think reward mechanisms are so important yeah. and they're something that will really change your organisation and getting them right is, is massively important. If you see a company which doesn't have the right reward mechanisms, it tends to drift. It doesn't fulfil its strategic objective. It doesn't do what it's set out to do. This is the Evolving Enterprises podcasts, stories of growth and transformation. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.